Faith is here to stay. People are going to find ways of making sense of the world that go beyond science and material reality. And if a politician is good at exploiting that or speaking that language, they can find ways to attract those people to their party or their ideas that have nothing to do with empirical reality. Dr. Eric Kurlander is the author of Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich, a masterwork of exhaustive research that tells the story of what he calls the Nazi supernatural imaginary. A historian who specializes in modern German history, he is also a professor at Stetson University, where he teaches classes I desperately want to take, like Our Monsters, Ourselves, A Supernatural History of Self and Society. And today, for our American Hysteria History course, the supernatural is on the syllabus. And this lesson actually stretches outside the borders of America, but at the same time, it has something very important to teach us about ourselves. So take your seat in the front or the back of the classroom and pay attention. A quick preface to this episode. As the Nazis increased their power in the years leading up to the end of the liberal Weimar Republic, they used a potent tool of fascism, the creation of a modern German myth, a time when Germany was great, and then mixed in some revamped supernatural stories, occult and esoteric beliefs, fairy tales, pseudosciences, Eastern and Western religion, dousing, mysticism, astrology, Hitler's beloved world ice theory, and many sensational conspiracy theories. Some of the highest ranking Nazis surrounding Adolf Hitler were willing to investigate all kinds of bizarre practices that could increase their power and control over the population. And through a mashup of fantastical beliefs, old and new, they formed the Nazi supernatural imaginary as a battle between good and evil that would lay the groundwork for everything that was to come. As you listen, things might start to sound eerily similar to some of the oddest and most dangerous American fantastical beliefs and pseudosciences that have come out of the last seven strange years. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on our show. Thank you, Chelsea, for having me. This is a topic that is so weirdly unknown. I know that when I picked up your book, I had just the vaguest sense that these occult beliefs kind of permeated the rise of the Nazis, but I just had no idea how deep it went, not necessarily in a conspiracy way, but in the way of building a mythos. And so what I wanted to kind of start off with is myth-making is such a huge part of fascism and this idea that the past is great and that we need to bring back the past and that there are certain powers that can kind of come from that. And so I was hoping you would give us an introduction to what were the conditions that these early myths were cultivated before we saw the Nazis actually have power, but when we were still kind of in the Weimar Republic days. 
That's a great question. Um, mythology is one part of the three different strains of supernatural thinking that that I see happening before 1933 and that the Third Reich exploits. There's the occult proper, which you mentioned, which is a, a modern version of some medieval practices, right? But occultists in the 20th century feel that they're practicing a kind of science of the soul. They don't see what they're doing as mythological, even though it has a lot of parallels to mythology. And then you have what's called what I call border science or Grenzwissenschaft, which is kind of a outgrowth of occultism. But these are people who consider themselves scientists, modern scientists Mm -hmm. who are investigating the frontiers of human experience, the psyche that mainstream scientists don't know how to do methodologically or have no interest in doing parapsychology, cosmobiology, radiesthesia. So many of these practices, whether occult or border scientific, might seem faith-based, I would argue they are, but they're not explicitly linked to mythology. Mythology, I'd put in the third kind of bucket of traditions, which I find to be fairly central to right-wing thinking in Central Europe. Um, And that would be pagan and alternative religious tradition and mythology. You see a lot of overlap there because, of course, Nordic mythology is linked to pagan, Germanic, and Nordic religion. And so in that bounded sense, mythology was very important, right? And you see a resurgence of that in the Romantic period Mm -hmm. where in a post-Enlightenment world, people who feel that something's been lost and aren't maybe traditionally Christian start to look into resuscitating Germanic folklore and mythology. The Grimm brothers, Herder, Arndt, Wagner, right? And then those traditions get popularized mm-hmm. and you have scholars by the 20s and 30s like Ernst Bloch actually pointing out the way that far-right thinkers, not just the Nazis, but other folkish groups and neoconservative groups, sometimes instrumentally, but sometimes seemingly because they believe it, are constantly operating in kind of mythological terms. They're invoking Nordic mythology. They Some of them change their names, like Carl Maria Villagut, to Wise Thor, so Wise Thor. So traditions of Germanic mythology and sometimes Indo-Aryan mythology as a way of making sense of the world. So I'll just start with that to say that it's a crucial aspect of this, but it's merely one component in one third of the traditions that I tend to see percolating and what I call the supernatural imaginary. Which is a term that is so accurate. I just, I loved that term when I came across it. So thank you for that, because it works for the American supernatural imaginary as well. So I would like to talk about the conditions that allowed these myths to come to be in the general public. So what about Germany was ready to believe in these new and old concepts? Great question. So what is it in terms of the contingency? What separates Germany from these other countries that were also experiencing a renaissance and kind of romantic era mythology in the occult? So that's important to point out that the late 19th century is a kind of playground or Disneyland for people who are interested in alternative modes of knowing that are frustrated by the hegemony of of modern science and the industrial world. And so 
you have in Britain, France, America, you know, all sorts of people conducting seances and getting into parapsychology and going on, you know, ghost tours and trying to, and tarot readings. It's not just in Germany, but two things that I think are different about Germany historically, even before the Great Depression, which is the final triggering event. So the simple answer would be it's the Great Depression. But it wasn't just the Great Depression that helped, I think, politicize these ideas more so than maybe in France and Britain. One of the things you see in Germany and Austria is that as relatively new states formed in the 1860s and 70s that are trying to forge a national identity, they politicize some ideas about the occult, border science, mythology, doctrines like Mm. theosophy and ariosophy in ways that didn't occur in Britain and France. They remain occult ideas, but they're kind of privatized because everyone, you know, is already invested in a, a certain political tradition coming out of the French Revolution or the English Revolution or English constitutionalism. And in Germany and Austria, where there's still some open-endedness about what does it mean to be German or Austrian? Are we Republican? Are we monarchist? Do we have a bicameral legislature? What, who's a citizen and who's not? These debates are occurring in lots of places, but people on the, on the far right sometimes start to invoke these kinds of traditions as a way of making sense of the world, the sociopolitical world. So that's one thing that's different. And the other thing I noticed that's different, which I think is linked to this slightly different experience of the Industrial Revolution and modernity, which again is destabilizing traditional structures everywhere. And again, Germany, Italy, where you do get fascism of a more robust variety, there is an emphasis on race and space, kind of territory and biopolitics in the discussions of the occult, border science, cosmobiology, mythology, folklore, that is much more subtle or marginal Mm -hmm. when you look at the same occult associations in Britain and France. So do they talk about root races like Madame Blavatsky did in in her Mm -hmm. theosophic works? Sure. They think there were seven different races and they were at different stages of evolution, but the preoccupation with the racial aspects and those are the two things you see already before World, World War I, which is another triggering event I'll get to, that maybe paved the way for the different trajectory of the supernatural imaginary in Germany and Austria. It wouldn't have been enough. I mean, a lot of people would argue that Germany and Austria, 1890s to World War I, are starting to head towards a more parliamentary democracy that's more inclusive. You have emancipation of the Jews. There's an effort in those two countries to integrate Poles and Czechs. But there's definitely... I would say, a more public political aspect to the supernatural imaginary in those countries, and there's a more racial aspect to it. And so then when you get World War I, that's where these kind of marginal groups start to become mainstreamed among conservative small town and rural Germans and Austrians. That's where you start to see a connection, direct connection between some of these ideas about the folk and about race and space and the problems with democracy and Jewish world conspiracy and all this stuff and right-wing politics. That's the 20s. And then with the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you have kind of this third stage. 
where things become so desperate that many people already open to this alternative to liberal or social democratic mm-hmm. views of the world become more likely to, to support the Nazis. We know that Hitler did not participate, generally speaking, or hold too much interest in occultic thinking, more so border science. But he had a lot of people around him that did, especially very high ranking officials. Could you tell us about what they brought to the movement? Yeah, very good question. So let's say 20, 30 percent of German and Austrian society if you take all the different doctrines that fit into either alternative or pagan religion and mythology, border science, or the occult, they were interested or subscribed to one of them. Let's say it's 20, 30%. Hitler's on the fringe of that. He read some of those books. He was familiar with those ideas well before he became a politician. How could you not be in Vienna and Munich? But he was not a practitioner. He didn't go to astrologers. He didn't read lots of works of theosophy to to see how it might be linked to the origins of the Germanic race or or Ariosophy. He did supposedly read Lanz von Liebenfeld's journal, Ostara, which was an Ariosophic journal that had lots of kind of semi-pornographic, anti-Semitic and racist tropes. But other than that, you know, he had affinities for it. But as you say, he was not a practicing occultist, and he may not have even believed in some of these things. Heinrich Himmler and Rudolf Hess, on the other hand, who at various times would have been among the highest ranking Nazis, Hess was basically Hitler's right-hand man in the early to mid-20s. He would then become deputy Fuhrer. So in the party structure, not the state, but within the party, if something had happened to Hitler, Hess technically would have replaced him as head of the party for a period of time. And Heinrich Himmler, who wasn't that important in the 20s and early 30s, by the mid-30s had become head of the Reich police and eventually basically became minister of the interior and had his own personal army, the Waffen-SS. So by the middle of World War II, he's pretty much the second most powerful Nazi. So these two figures were directly invested in all three of these areas. So Himmler whether it's the Nordic mythology, paganism, Indo-Aryan, Hindu, Tibetan traditions, occult ideas coming out of Ariosophy or border science, right? Parapsychology, astrology. Himmler had his own personal astrologer. He was in, into all three. He spent mil, you know, hundreds of thousands of Reichsmarks investigating these ideas. So that's, that would be kind of the most powerful Nazi who really was involved in all of these areas. Rudolf Hess, dabbled in the religious and mythological stuff. I would, more than dabbled. He sponsored a guy named Edgar Gdake to get a professorship in Munich who was into kind of believe that certain mythological ideas were probably true. And you could somehow through some kind of almost psychic Jungian um, investigation, figure out what had really happened and were kind of prehistory. So Hess was into that, but Hess was very much into the occult and had also had his own personal astrologer. So let's just start, let's say, two of the five, six, seven highest-ranking Nazis in the party, state, and police were very, very invested in and openly sponsored a lot of these ideas. And Hitler certainly tolerated and exploited them, even if he privately made fun of them or said that we can't let our party get hijacked by these ideas. So we can start with that. 
there were other high-ranking Nazis who selectively, so Alfred Rosenberg, who was uh, Himmler's rival, who also held high-ranking party positions, was one of the chief influences on on Hitler early on in some of his geopolitical ideas, who would later be the minister for the occupied territories. Rosenberg is a top Nazi politician and ideologue. Mm -hmm. Rosenberg would always claim to be anti-occultist, but as I argue in the book, a lot of these Nazi anti-occultists were anti-occultists because they saw it as a rival epistemology. Rosenberg had his own ideas. I mean, he wrote a book called The Myth of the 20th Century about the role of mythology and Nordic religion. And, and he also believed there were connections to Tibet based on some post-Atlantean flood. So Rosenberg, whatever he said about specific occult practices and however much he made fun of Himmler, was very much invested in many of these ideas as well. Walter Dare, head of the Reich Food Estate, basically kind of agricultural minister for a time. He's also the guy who popularized the slogan, blood and soil, Blut and mm-hmm. Boden. I don't know if you've heard that before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So that's Walter Dare. He was very invested in this stuff. I found stuff in the archives where he's like, I don't think it's a coincidence that medieval Japanese houses and Germanic houses look the same because they're both part of the same Indo-Aryan religion with connections to Tibet. Mm-hmm. He, he argued that, and he's not alone here. Himmler also made this, this argument and other members of the SS that the whole point of the Inquisition was a Jewish plot because yeah. the Jews had somehow infiltrated the Catholic Church to wipe out Germanic religion and race or civilization by eliminating all the women who were both accused of witchcraft because they practiced natural healing and pagan traditions. And of course, they gave birth to children. So if you wipe them out, you could undermine. And he had theories that millions of women were murdered in the There's just no evidence for this. Himmler thought one of his own relatives was murdered in the witch crazes. So I could go down the list. It's Let's put it this way. These are not marginal figures. Many, if not all of the leading Nazis at some point either sponsored or tolerated some of these ideas. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Could you tell me the story of Rudolf Hess and especially uh, how I think astrology might have been part of the impetus to do what he did eventually. Right. In, in early May, Rudolf Hess, who was still the deputy Fuhrer, but had been kind of relieved of a lot of his other responsibilities, was aware of the Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union that was about to occur. And it was also, like Hitler, kind of an Anglophile who was frustrated that the British Empire, this great Anglo-Saxon empire, didn't want to make a deal with the Third Reich. He decided he was going to kind of salvage everything by unilaterally flying to Britain and negotiating a peace with Britain before the Soviet Union was invaded, because he was very concerned about fighting both Great Britain and the Soviet Union simultaneously. So there are two crackdowns, as I argue in the book, on the occult. One is in the summer of 37 after a whole bunch of really kind of mainstream police and and kind of debunkers, people who already in the Weimar Republic were saying were frustrated with the rise of, of all this interest in magic and the occult, who had connections to the police, which Himmler controlled, kept writing letters and arguing that the occult is still very persistent. The Ministry of the Interior, the Reich Education Office, and the SS all agreed, okay, well, We'll start to surveil and maybe arrest some of these people and ban some astrological magazines. It's complicated, but there was some effort in the summer of 37 to really crack down. And then that kind of waned up until World War II. And then in May of 41, when Hess tries to leave and make a deal with Britain, partly for good reasons. I mean, it was an absurd idea that they were going to listen to the deputy Fuhrer, who by that point had already been marginalized which is one reason Hess went, is he wanted to show how useful he was. And they were about to invade the Soviet Union, which he actually didn't think was a great idea to have a two-front war. He was right about that, ultimately. So I don't want to paint Hess as, even though he would paint himself as being insane, partly to avoid the death penalty, some people think, Mm -hmm. at Nuremberg. But there is some evidence that Hess consulted his astrologer before committing to this flight to Britain. And his rivals... Goebbels, Rosenberg, and Heydrich. So there are a lot of people who saw Hess's for a long time as a rival. By this point, of course, he'd been marginalized. They immediately blamed his occult proclivities for this. I think Goebbels was the first to go to Hitler and say, you know why he did this? He, his astrologer told him to do it. So Hitler, who, as I just pointed out, had basically dealt with occult and border scientific ideas with kid gloves, Uh, Bormann, Goebbels, Rosenberg all said, let's go after the occult. So within like a week of Hess's flight, there are new laws that come out and the police start arresting astrologers and throwing them in camps and confiscating occult materials. Their main frustration was any kind of sectarianism. If you read Gestapo reports, or SD reports, their kind of internal secret service, they're always looking for groups that don't subscribe to Nazi ideology because they have their own ideology or their own 
leader or Fuhrer, right? That's why they don't like Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. It's also why they don't like uh, ardent astrologers or anthroposophists because they see Rudolf Steiner as this great, almost divine figure and leader. So when you see a lot of this hostility in 41, this pent-up hostility, it's not necessarily because people disagree with Hess that there are unseen forces in the world or that what Himmler would call scientific astrology can't give you answers. And in fact, Himmler will use astrologers after Hess, please. There was a crackdown on the cult, but the reason it didn't last is because there were too many Nazis interested in these ideas to arrest, persecute, much less murder all their practitioners. What happened is, as I show it with like Hitler's magicians controversy, because after the Hess flight, that also a bunch of people who were accused of the occult and practicing magic were initially told they couldn't practice anymore. But then the debunkers were told to stop undermining their ability to make money from doing magic shows. So my point is there's this great ambivalence towards really cracking down on these ideas because many Nazis were invested in them and just didn't like it if someone was so into a guru or religious leader or an occult leader that they didn't see the Fuhrer as the absolute leader. And many historians have confused those crackdowns with actual hostility to the occult. In fact, Goebbels actually used astrologers for propaganda for three and a half years. And it put out Nostradamus prophecies that predicted German victories. So I could go down the line of all these contradictions. But but yes, when it initially happened, Hess did kind of act as a catalyst for a crackdown, the second big crackdown on the occult. You talked about how the Nazis used astrology as propaganda. And I I think one of the most interesting parts of your book for me was talking about Eric Hannison. Can you tell us that story about the fire and the seance? It's fascinating to me. Sure. So, yeah, one of the first famous encounters between Nazism and astrology is not so much because the Nazis like they do later on, try to exploit astrology actively. It's because a famous astrologer named Eric uh, Hanusen, whose real name, I believe, was Hermann Steinschneider. He was an Austrian Jew, uh, born, I think, the same year as Hitler, uh, raised in Austria. He eventually changed his name, became a famous magician clairvoyant in the 1920s, was sued a bunch of times for supposedly being a charlatan, and he famously would win those cases. And by 32, he had his own house of occultism um, in the middle of Berlin, where he would perform seances. He had his own weekly magazine that was kind of a pulp magazine with kind of, you think about the early pulp magazines and comic books in, the, in America in the 30s, it was like that. Um, it would have famous stars who had been in horror movies, you know, looking very kind of mysterious and, and endorsing some kind of pill or, or lotion or something. So Hanneson is this major figure in pop culture in 32. And he also happened to be friendly with in the kind of demi-monde of the you know, Berlin nightlife, like another guy, this horror writer, Hans Avers, we could talk about. He had to be friendly with a number of members of the stormtroopers who liked to go out and party and were familiar with the shadier sides of Berlin life. And it just so happened that shortly after Hitler was named 
chancellor and Hanussen, who was friendly with members of the Nazi party, even predicting that Hitler would be named chancellor. So a day or two before this famous Reichstag fire, Hanussen, who we know was friends with some of the Berlin stormtroopers, members of the Nazi party, and had a bunch of other occultists and middle-class supporters and, and people who gave him money. He held a seance in the House of Occultism. And during the seance, there were multiple witnesses there who said he talked about seeing a giant building on fire, you know, an important building. I don't know if he said government building. And then, of course, like a day or day and a half later, the, the Reichstag was set on fire. So I was interested in this from the perspective of the role of the supernatural in facilitating the support of Nazism, that you have this famous occultist who's endorsing them, claiming they're going to win, and then somehow seems to know that they're planning to burn the Reichstag. Obviously, occultists at the time thought maybe he really did see the future. And people who think the Nazis did plan the Reichstag fire, because at the time, the Third Reich blamed it on a communist, a guy named Kurt von der Lube, Mm -hmm. I think. But that was evidence that they knew about it or planned it earlier, right? If someone close to the Nazis, unless he really had magical powers, is talking about this, then that's evidence that the stormtroopers, who would have been the people likely to help set the Reichstag on fire, were planning it. So why is this all interesting and important? It shows a connection, of course, between the occult and Nazism in a very clear sense. And it helps explain why he was murdered a few weeks later. Rumors that he was Jewish turned out to be true. So while his Jewishness and his occultism certainly didn't help, I think added kind of fuel, or so to speak, in the stormtroopers being ordered to kill him. He was probably killed by one of the people he was actually friends with. Um, then his body was dumped in the woods somewhere. But it's an in- interesting episode, and in, in again, showing this very close relationship between leading Nazis and a leading occultist, and that leading occultist recognizing that the market for occultism among people who are pro-fascist, or vice versa, that the market for fascism among occultists, right, however you want to put it, was pretty strong. You mentioned horror as something that was also used during this time. When I say horror, I mean pop culture horror uh, writers and things like that. So what was the role that this played inside of the supernatural imaginary? Right. So there's there's two interesting things here. One, this book that was found in Hitler's library by a guy named Aaron Schertel, who is a parapsychologist and occultist who sent it to Hitler. So this is already interesting that a prominent parapsychologist and occultist couldn't have been any earlier than 24 when Hitler first became famous because of the failed Hitler putsch in November 23. And then he went on trial and the book I think came out in 23. So at some point between 24 and probably the late twenties, this occultist sends Hitler this book called uh, magic theory and practice. And within the book, there's all sorts of quotes about how horror is a positive thing and and all great practitioners of magic know how to appeal to the terrible and horrific. And, you know, it's, it's one of these, like a lot of occult ideas that, you know, Satan isn't bad. Lucifer was a god of light, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's not exactly that, but it's that kind of uh, that's the gist that you need to get in touch with your inner daemon or demon and and use that force to manipulate people. 
And Hitler seems to have read it and annotated it. There's, I think, 66 passages underlined in pencil. And it's unlikely, given that it has a monogram from Hitler's library, that someone other than him would have gotten it and had time to do that. So are we 100% sure it's Hitler's annotations? No, but it's more likely than not. And the fact that he he underlined phrases, I don't have it in front of me, but like horror lurks in the soul of every man and can be exploited is already very interesting that Hitler sees that, not in my mind, because he actually believes in demonology and magic forces, but that he saw insights through parapsychology into manipulating people, right? And that's why he found the book interesting. The other interesting kind of story that I talk about in my chapter on the Weimar Republic is Hans Heinz Avers, who was a very famous horror writer in the period from kind of a decade before World War I to the Great Depression, that kind of 20 years or so. He wrote about vampires and witches and he was a very popular writer. And even though he was kind of cosmopolitan, had lived in the United States and traveled the world, he was very frustrated with the Versailles Treaty and what he saw as the weakness and materialism and cynicism of Weimar democracy and the the center left. And he became enamored of and started hanging out with those same kind of stormtroopers and right-wing paramilitary figures that Honison was friendly with. And got to remember, this guy's a horror writer who's talking about bizarre sexual practices. And if you read his stories, this guy is R-rated, kind of like the Stephen King or Clive Barker, the 1920s. And yet, when he publishes a book in, I think, 31, called uh, Riders in the German Night, basically Knights in the German Night, it's It's about how all the right-wing paramilitary, many of whom were Nazis, who assassinated left-wing people and Jews, they were heroes for trying to rescue Germany, right? Mm -hmm. They were kind of white nationalist paramilitary heroes trying to rescue Mm -hmm. Germany from the Versailles Treaty and French African troops who were occupying the Rhine and, and Jews and socialists, right? So he writes this book. I think independently, Ernst Strom, who is head of the stormtroopers, you know, the famous stormtroopers, the brown shirts, and Goebbels, I think independently both heard about it or read the book and decided, it was Goebbels ultimately, I think, who gave him the assignment that Avers would be a great propagandist for the Nazi party. So this horror writer who writes about bizarre, satanic, vampiric, protagonist, antagonist, is hired by the Nazi party to write a biography of Horst Wessel, their most famous martyr. A Nazi was killed by a communist. One of their most famous marching songs is called the Horst Wessel Lied, the Horst Wessel song. So Goebbels hires him in 32, and he's even invited to give speeches, for example, in 32, late 32, before the Nazis officially take power. He gives a speech at a graveyard where a bunch of right-wing people had been buried. And it's to the point, I mean, it sounds absurd now, but even at that time, we have newspaper articles from people on the left just kind of laughing that the Nazi party would be hiring horror writers who are famous for kind of semi-pornographic, I'm not even going to use the terms they use, vampire stories as a propagandist, right? 
and there was actually internal talk. So I think Alfred Rosenberg was one of the Nazis. Like, why would you hire this guy? He's disgusting. He's not politically reliable. But, you know, Goebbels, Rome, other Nazis apparently didn't think that was a problem. And, and in fact, Avers asked if for his birthday he could meet Adolf Hitler. And apparently he did get to meet Hitler and shake his hand. So, again, it shows you these affinities, personal, political, ideological, between what I'm calling the, the supernatural imaginary and the figures who represent that and the Nazi party. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. How about world ice theory? Uh, This is something I tried to understand outside of your book as well. And it's a complicated theory. And it's what we know of as the main border science. I think it would be classified as that Hitler was dedicated to and thus it became a big part of the Nazi imaginary. Can you tell us what world ice theory is and how that affected things? Sure. And let me, you know, broaden the lens first for a minute. The reason I'm frustrated by all these, I mean, there's a lot of problems with this, these occult obsessions, you know, that people have, the Nazis and the occult, the cult this, occult that. Occultism really is a discrete tradition that has to do with witchcraft, Satanism, certain numerology practices like astrology. It doesn't encompass every single faith-based or border scientific theory out there. And the reason world ice theory is such an important case study is it's really not traditionally linked to anything having to do with the occult. So you could say parapsychology and dowsing and astrology are practices, border sciences, that many people who are into the occult or witchcraft or whatever might also be interested in. But world ice theory is a separate border scientific theory, equally faith-based, equally absurd, that many Nazis found fascinating, including Hitler and Himmler. So I'm, I'm giving you an example where someone who even made fun of the occult, like Hitler, then invests in this idea, and this is what it was. Uh, there was an amateur, I believe he was trained as an engineer. And you're gonna see this a lot. You see it in my book. I'd argue you see this in the, the far right today, that many of the people who push border scientific theories They're not uneducated. There are lawyers, they're engineers, they're doctors who know just enough to come up with something plausible, but don't actually have PhDs in the field they're talking about. Like they're not physicists, they're not geologists. So were you to come up with a theory like world ice theory, which says, and this came to him in a dream, by the way, that all the phenomena in terms of astronomy and kind of the solar system, how the planets interacted, stars and galaxies were created and all these sorts of things. In his mind had to do with some giant block of ice that exploded and that created all sorts of kind of icy objects in the atmosphere and some of them collided. And then when they collided, you know, they, they could create 
huge floods. So for example, he had some theory about how the flood that's in the Bible was related to a block of ice crashing into the earth. If you read it, there are elements of it, which I guess in the late 19th century sound somewhat plausible because we knew that space was really cold and there were planets and, and meteors and things that were very cold, you know, below zero, what have you. But there's no scientific evidence for any of this. No physicist or geologist at the time, even in 1900, thought anything that he was saying was plausible. As one, I think, geologist put it in like 1910, if you replaced the word ice with the word olive oil in every publication that Horbiger, this guy's name was Hans Horbiger, had put out, who he co-wrote with an amateur uh, astronomer named Philip Fouch, who you know, was good at observing planets and things, but knew nothing about the composition of, of heavenly objects, right? If you replaced ice with olive oil, his theories would be no more or less plausible, right? Like you couldn't disprove or prove them any better or worse if you just said there's blocks of olive oil floating around. So I think that indicates to you how fanciful this whole thing was. And yet he starts his own world ice. Um, it was called glacial cosmogony in a more scientific context because Welt Eisler, a world ice theory, initially sounded too kind of amorphous. There are associations in Austria and Germany, and a bunch of people join them. And then, of course, because it's not based in science, there are variations on his original teachings. And then people who don't buy into what he is while he was still alive, which was into the 30s, what he said was actually happening were considered uh, heretical. And so there's this whole thing where Himmler, who thinks the world ice theory is is just the kind of best holistic way of explaining all sorts of geological and, and astronomical phenomena, as well as some of the pagan Nordic mythological stuff like floods and Atlantis and Thor and frost giants. So he decides it's going to be an official doctrine that the SS is going to promote through its meteorological institute. And then he starts getting into arguments with world ice theorists who don't completely subscribe to everything Horbiger wrote. And at some point, I think he had Horbiger's son writing nasty letters about some of these so-called world ice theorists. Now, remember, what's interesting here is Himmler doesn't arrest or kill these people. He just says, well, I'm not going to sponsor you or your article's not going to get published anymore. And meanwhile, mainstream scientists who are still around in Germany, right, are writing things like how, how is it that the Reichsführer is getting away with hiring these basically fairy tale authors to put out articles about world ice theory as if they're based in fact and talk about frost giants. And we're like trying to train the next generation for the next world war and get them, you know, really knowledgeable in math and science. And this stuff is being put out and endorsed in party magazines. So Himmler's fighting two kind of battles. On the one hand, he's got what you always have when you have occultists or religious gurus, right? Or new age people. They're always angry at the one who has the alternative doctrine and think they're the ones who are more scientific. So he's fighting with the other world ice theorists who don't completely subscribe to his version of world ice theory. And on the other hand, he's got mainstream scientists who are like, why is the Third Reich endorsing this at all? Right. And yet this continues because Himmler is very powerful and Hitler 
despite his skepticism towards some of these ideas, decides that world ice theory is the bee's knees. It makes a lot of sense. So again, since Hitler wasn't operating scientifically, while at times he sounds like he believes in biology and Darwinism, when it suits him, he could be just as invested in these bizarre ideas like world ice theory or having pendulum dowsers check the Reich chancellery for cancer-causing death rays, which he did at some point as well, even though he supposedly didn't believe in it. Well, that leads perfectly into a bigger question that I know isn't a simple answer, but how much do you think, and I know it'll vary from person to person, how much of this is about genuine belief and how much of it is about the power that you can wield over people once you get them to believe in something? That's an excellent question. And you you already sort of answered it with the second part. I mean, psychologists, theologians, sociologists have studied how persistent and powerful faith is in human civilization, culture, whatever you want to call it, psychology, regardless of modernity, science, technology, that there is this longing for myth, as one of my colleagues puts it, in talking about mythology, the research of mythology in the 19th century, and, and, and resurgence of interest in religion. So before we exoticize these beliefs or create a new mythology around the Nazis, let's be very clear that in most modern, putatively secular, post-industrial societies, if you do polls on do you believe in an afterlife or did Jesus rise from the dead or did Muhammad speak to you know God, a majority in many of these societies, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, will still say yes. And that's, I don't want to call it a problem. That's just a reality. So the question is, are those faith-based beliefs, kind of the amalgam of which I might call the supernatural imaginary, are they operationalized in a clear way politically? And we can think of lots of ways that organized religion, Catholicism, Protestantism, I mean, think about the witch crazes, fundamentalist Islam have been operationalized politically. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Nazis who were immersed in their own supernatural traditions that were powerful in Germany and Austria on the religious side mixed with Christianity. We haven't talked about that, but I wouldn't say it was completely non-Christian. There were Christian elements to it. It's not surprising that that as a right-wing party who doesn't feel like can compete on questions of taxes or education or multilateral diplomacy, that in those areas, if they are too rational about it, they won't be able to differentiate themselves from center-right liberals or center-left socialists, right? They have to find a way. I mean, this is the dilemma of modern right-wing politics. If you don't want to actually acknowledge the complexity of reality and the multiple ways which would all be a compromise and very pragmatic to try and solve it, you've got to come up with some simpler, more easily digestible explanation of the world and the future that in a way is eschatological, like Jesus coming back, something will be better if you support us. And the Nazis recognize that, that these ideas were very useful. Does that mean they all believed in it? No. Did a significant number believe in some of these doctrines? Absolutely. More than I expected to find. I thought it would be more instrumental, right? But in this way, 
I don't want to say Marx was wrong. Marx calls religion the opiate of the people, right? Um, at some point, you have to acknowledge as a social scientist that faith is here to stay, and it's not just an opiate. People are going to find ways of making sense of the world that go beyond science and material reality. And if a politician is good at exploiting that or speaking that language, they can find ways to attract those people to their party or their ideas that have nothing to do with empirical reality. And the Nazis use these things to get about a third of the population to support them. And that's the other important thing to remember, whether it was Germany in the 20s who were facing way worse crises in America or France or Poland are facing now, you know, before anyone again tries to criticize or marginalize the Germans. Let's remember between a, a new democracy that hadn't existed and was built on a, the basis of a horrible peace treaty the terrible inflation and the Great Depression, the fact that only a third really supported the Nazis, and the Nazis were one of the more dynamic fascist parties in all of Europe with a fewer charismatic leader who most would say was more impressive than Mussolini or Franco, and only a third supported them. Two-thirds didn't vote for the Nazis, right? Whatever their problems with democracy, the left, the right... This is a powerful cocktail, but one that is very hard to get a majority to support. But all they needed was a third to become the largest party. And then there were enough people who were skeptical towards the republic that once they had a foothold, they could build fascism, you know, from within. And I think that's what's scary about these things is you don't need to convince a majority or you don't need a majority to subscribe to these kinds of ideas. You just need to get that third of society who seems most likely to be proto-fascist and or interested in alternative explanations to the material reality that liberals and socialists are fighting over. For an American audience, it's important to point this out. Since the French Revolution, the two sides, including the Cold War, that are, I would say, legitimate points of view that kind of been fighting everything out are liberals versus socialists, right? Liberalism, broadly speaking, that counts the conservative view of like libertarianism, small government, separation of powers, and also progressive liberals who still believe in capitalism, individual rights, separation of powers, but don't mind a welfare state. Those would be the liberals. And then you've got socialists, right? The moderate ones who accept some capitalism, but still believe in wealth, you know, the Bernie Sanders types, the European social Democrats, all the way to communism. You take those two large groups they both tend to argue over things like taxes, education, roads, infrastructure, diplomacy, right, in more or less empirical ways and with very different approaches and, and solutions to problems. What the far right has done since the 1890s is find a way to transcend those debates because they can't win them, right? They don't like the traditional libertarian conservative who's still based in reality. They certainly don't like progressive liberalism on the center right. And they clearly hate international socialism, left-wing, worker-oriented, welfareism that's inclusive of all ethnicities, gender, right? So how do you transcend that? You create what many fascist alt-right parties have created, a form of what the Nazis called national socialism, it tries to triangulate. It tries to take elements of liberalism, socialism, and conservatism, which are not compatible, right? And then through some overarching ideology invested in race, space, the blood, the soil, 
getting back to nature, getting back to the way things were, trying to get enough of the electorate to split off to take power and then create a dictatorship where there's no more elections. So they'll never again have to justify anything, right? And the Nazis used the supernatural imaginary, as many fascist parties do in different ways, or traditional religion, whether it's a fundamentalist Muslim or evangelical Christian context, to take power and get people on their side without really solving any problems. They don't even want to talk about real problems. I can't help, uh, and I'm sure our listeners the same way, uh, hear a lot of similarities, obviously, Every situation and every rise to power is different and every country is different, but kind of fundamentally, I'm hearing a lot of things that remind me of the last six years um, in terms of sudden explosion of fringe spiritual beliefs and how those sort of started to feed into this slow moving fascist transformation that we've been seeing in America. Well, and, it, and just like, so it's not just the United States, right? It's the- Right, right, right. You see this incubating um, in the 90s with the kind of return of the repressed in terms of increased religiosity, whether it's Al-Qaeda and fundamentalist Islam, whether it's evangelical, you know, the moral majority in the far right in the late 80s and 90s in America. You could see the rise of Orthodox Jewish, I mean- in Israel, a small group, I'm, I'm there right now, of Orthodox Jews dictate a lot of the policy, marriage and, and race laws here, you know, attitudes towards Palestinians. So again, these are all supernatural or faith-based right, traditions that since the 90s have grown in a lot of what we would have seen as secular, modern, educated societies. And when those traditions alone don't work, right, people who remain frustrated, whether it's with neoliberalism, center-right solutions to problems, Clinton, Obama, Mitt Romney, whatever you want to call it, or center-left, Ocasio-Ortez, Sanders, European social democracy, that all just seems to them too secular, too complicated. They're searching for an alternative. And whether we call it far-right, alt-right, populist-right, fascist, there are elements of that party now drawing on conspiracy theories, an amorphous, racialized nativist Christianity, a kind of global sympathy to other dictators, exactly like the 20s and 30s. I mean, think about the way that Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, all these people saw affinities with each other. Tojo, right? I mean, how did the Axis Alliance get created? Well, the Japanese had a far-right imperial supernaturally based ideology of empire and race and space that had its parallels in Italy and, and Germany, right? And Romania, Croatia. So you're seeing the same thing. There's a reason the far right in America finds Erdogan in Turkey or the Polish right or Putin even as attractive or people to be admired, right? Because they're drawing on similar demographic and ideological traditions, um, whether it's Dugan in Russia, this mysticist, racist, Slavophile guy who apparently Putin has found convincing at times, or Bannon in the United States, who explicitly has admitted he read Julius Evola, an occultist, fascist guy who was affiliated with Mussolini and, and somehow, you know, after World War II became the doyen of the far right and traditionalism, this kind of 
far-right mysticism. Bannon invokes this guy. So you're seeing this isn't just a nativist movement, is my point. It's it's a predictable response of people frustrated with the traditional left and right, and they're seeking something transcendent that may not be materially viable, right? Or you think about anti-Semitism, the role that plays in all these, in a lot of these ideas, or it's usually some ethnic minority, but you know, how can George Soros be both the head of the most powerful Wall Street capitalists and he's a socialist? Right. If you think about these myths about Soros. Right. Or you bring in Jeffrey Epstein and Hollywood liberals and they're all linked. They're all stealing children. And, you know, we think about the Jewish blood libel that Jews would steal Christian children and drink their blood on Easter. You're seeing just in, in a new variation, a lot of these conspiracy theories, Pizzagate. And, you know, to the degree that Epstein actually was, along with the Prince of Wales and whoever else, into young women, it, it reinforced that idea that there's this global cabal of Jews and wealthy people who are both socialist and capitalist, and they run Wall Street and Washington, and they're out there to destroy, you know, the small business person, Main Street, and the, the authentic blood and soil traditional American or traditional Frenchman or French farmer or Dutch, you know, hardworking Dutchmen. And somehow these globalist forces need to be eliminated. That's the rhetoric that's tied into the supernatural imaginary, the protocols of the elders of Zion, magical Jews meeting in the Prague graveyard to decide how to divvy up the world, right? So yes, is it identical? No. Are these patterns familiar? Absolutely. I do want to say that your book and the work you do and other academics like you make my job so much easier. I mean, how long did it take you to write this book? It took nine years from start to finish. Nine years. Well, it shows. It's a fantastic book. I really hope that our listeners will pick it up and I will encourage them as much as I can to do that. God, the supernatural imaginary. I'm going to be using that. Thank you so much for your work, for giving us your time and uh, for being such a nice guy. Thank you, Chelsea. Yeah, I hope people find this interesting. I appreciate you having me on. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you pick up Eric's book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. What we talked about today only skimmed the surface. Next time on the show, we'll use all the information we learned today as context for next week's episode, about an astrologer sent to America by the British government as part of an elaborate propaganda campaign to help convince the country to join World War II. You're not going to want to miss it. If you want to get more of our show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you can get access to two other podcasts, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor, and Walk With Me, where I go on walks and talk to you about whatever I want alone in the woods. This episode has sound by ClearCommo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great day.